0: to your second laugh experiment. And no one knows if it's gonna take off or not. And to be honest, one other thing about the metaverse, if the metaverse takes off, I think I'm gonna be uh, liable to get on board with whatever metaverse company is not Facebook.
1: This podcast contains the arguably witty banter of two friends, Skippy and Dougles, that like to debate about investing. Content is intended to be entertaining and for informational purposes only, not investment advice. You should do your own research and consult a financial professional before using any of the information in this podcast, and especially before investing. You're looking uh, posh today. Oh, I mean, I, I only wear designer brands over here. You are, you are like <laughs> deep value to the core. Your designer brand is Kirkland. Nothing <laughs> wrong. So Nothing wrong with that. I'm just, uh, you know, I'm just trying to call a spade a spade over here.
0: Thank you. Uh, I appreciate that. Yeah. Uh, in the pre-show meeting, I was telling you about the things I'm buying off eBay uh, to wear
1: because uh, it's the cheapest market around. So, good point. How are you? I'm excited uh, for this conversation. There's there's a a good amount of momentum going on that would be good to chat about. And uh, actually, before I even get into the first thing, which is unrelated to investing, okay. but captured my attention, this week was. Quite for me, a uh, fascinating week to watch in the market is a big week this week or material week this week, but even like the month of October, actually S and P was up something like 7%, right? Like a a material month with this week. What felt fascinating to me was this is this very well is likely to be wrong because markets are random, but it's like this crescendo, you know, crescendo being the top of like the musical score when it's at the end and then like, boom, right where you have this backdrop of all the conversations that are happening about nonsense occurring, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, supply chains finally caught up to Apple. Oh yeah. Right? Which Missing Apple's like, I mean, I say this tongue in cheek, but I, I'm pretty sure Apple's
0: like murdering people in alleys to keep the supply chain going. Cause that's Tim Cook's thing. Like that's how he feels <laughs> that uh, just, just, he's just the best just, company <laughs> in the world.
1: Just for the record, I, I'm going to, I'm going to speak for Skippy and say that I do not believe that he believes <laughs> that murdering people in alleys is Tim Cook's thing for any reason. Okay, let me
0: let me back uh, let me backtrack that. A little. I think uh, Apple will go to great lengths to ensure that their supply chain is not disrupted, and I would not be surprised if sometimes that goes outside of the law. I I want to take back my. Yep. incredibly rash statement, because uh, I don't believe that. But yes, that's the company that you go, when it reaches
1: Apple, holy cow, it, there's no place to hide. Yep, exactly. So we'll see. Speaking of, here's where I'm going to kick it off, a little non-investing fishbowl piece of fascination that caught my eye. Talk, speaking of companies that are going to great lengths, are you familiar with A&W? So familiar
0: I mean, I had a family member that ate at ANW every day for 20 years straight. And I would join him on some of those adventures. So very familiar. I'm like gonna, the world's
1: foremost expert on this. Let's bring that up a bit later as well. That particular <laughs> that particular point. Yeah. So what I'm gonna talk about today is let's frame this as math is important. Okay. It is important that people are able to do basic math. All right. And sometimes, sometimes in as my my eight year old now, you know, is doing like real math uh, in school and it can seem like irrelevant to everyday life. However, math's important. So how does this relate to a and I'm going to take you back about 40 years to the 1980s. Back then, right, you got the battle of the fast food chains that was happening. And our good friend McDonald's came out with the quarter pounder, sometimes a quarter pounder with cheese in the U.S., the Royale with cheese, apparently. If you go overseas. no, not in the U.S. In the U.K., the quarter pounder with cheese. No, <laughs> just keep going. Yeah. Anyway, so they came out with the quarter pounder. So it was all the rage. People buying quarter pounders, quarter pound meat in people's faces, galore. So A and W says, "We can do you one better. We're going to keep the price the same, but we're going to launch the one third pounder. Same price, yeah. more burger. So they had this campaign. Third is the word." Was the campaign? Ooh. They come out with it, they roll it out, they hit in the streets, right? Um, they're like, they got their, their marketing firm juices going, all excited, watching the cash roll in, ready for it, refresh that B of A account. Well, B of A wasn't around back then, but they they're refreshed that bank wrong. account. Yeah. And uh, no dollars came in. <laughs> refresh it again, no dollars. It didn't sell. So they couldn't figure out what the heck why. Like, we're giving you more for less, classic. And so they did focus groups and everything. And you are exactly right. It turned out that people were like, why would I pay the same price for less of a burger? I get one four over here. Are you trying to give me one three? Right. So anyway, so it didn't sell. But now the reason that the reason this came up uh, this week is because A&W said, we're, we're trying again. Like we believe over the past 40 years, the US educational system has improved and they're going one step further and not just rolling out the one third pounder they're rolling out the three ninths pounder they did focus (laughs) group testing and they think three ninths is better or something well i don't i don't know i don't know if that how deep they went there but my if if there's anything that says that it will be it's because nine is greater than four and so they needed a denominator in this thing that had a bigger number than the four is my guess as to why they did it but i'm curious as to whether math's all right. Uh, I
0: mean, just a free consulting session for AW right now. It should be called something like the fourth pound plus or something Ooh. really simple. So Ooh. you don't even have to, or you could say like whatever that percentage is, like, you know, X percent bigger than a fourth pounder. And you, so you don't confuse people. I, I don't think three ninths is really going to move the needle on this. What about nine twenty sevens? No but here's the thing <laughs> what if what happened over the last 40 years is like i don't really desire to have a third pound meat in my face like i might even want less than a quarter powder so it there's too many variables changing
1: here uh, i'm interested to see the results but i just don't know we oh, time will tell time will tell we shall see all right i'm going to roll this into an investing related topic and you provided the perfect transition earlier when you were talking about the daily a and w meals yep. that your family member had so there's there's an article that came out a post that came out called risking fast and slow uh it's in of dollars and data nick majuli i think is how you pronounce his name i i enjoy nick's post generally this one risking fast and slow was talking about two kinds of risk fast risk and slow risk so basically uh, what he's saying is that fast risk is a risk that hits you in an instant. And slow risk is one that accumulates over time. So the examples of fast risk that he give are like driving without a seatbelt, cheating on your spouse, using too much leverage, because they can all result in like immediate consequences. So you get like death, divorce, going broke, right? It's you take this risk, consequence immediate. Then you get slow risk, which is like not eating right. You, the, well, I'm, actually, let me not, I mean, I judge, I was saying that potentially going to A&W may not be eating right. Do that over the course of 20 years, right? It's something that catches up to you. Like you get heart yeah. disease or whatever eventually, right? In the the spousal situation, neglecting your spouse, right? That takes years, you know, potentially yeah. to come up. Or um the investing one he said was waiting to buy the dip in the stock market. So like it feels like you're doing something less risky, but now you're just sitting, you know, in cash all the time. Uh what do you said? That makes sense? The definition yeah, and the the
0: I know folks that have got stuck in cash gosh for like the last eight or nine years in a way because they got petrified with this. The The crash happened in 08, 09 and so you know they got scared and then when things turned they weren't sure if they ever turned and then it went from oh has it, have we really recovered to oh is it too frothy then you go you could make an argument since like 2013 it's been too frothy which is hilarious and and look at what's happened over there so i think a lot of people can relate to the
1: psychological component in day-to-day people mostly talk about fast risk right like that that's the when we when we say the word risk is generally talking about fast risk one thing that that was like a really notable point in here is he said that stocks have lots of fast risk but little slow risk and so like the 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 facts we can point to here if you look at the u.s stock market right? It could drop 35% over a five to six week period. Look at, you know, the February to March of 2020, right? You can drop real quick, fast risk, but this, but the US stock market has never lost money over any 20 year period. And so yeah. lots of fast risk, very little slow risk. And so the, the main point he's trying to make is that uh, in the past, we've often unknowingly or unintentionally, like we trade slow risk for fast risk because we don't talk enough about slow risk. So like we want to as I mentioned before, you want to avoid risk. So you sit in cash, right? So what's your what's your take on that? And then I'll throw out a couple other points. I love this. So I think the
0: person that did this specific topic, just brilliantly, the best I've ever seen is Nick Murray. Have you ever read uh, Simple Wealth, Inevitable Wealth, Douglas? No. Mm -mm. Okay, so that's my um, number one book recommendation for like, your people that aren't gonna be into the intelligent investor or like the deeper, even the Peter Lynch stuff, you know, like, or the Seth Klarman stuff or the Howard Marks stuff or the Buffett stuff. There's a lot of people that that's not even in their wheelhouse. So Simple Wealth, Inevitable Wealth by Nick Murray really does a fabulous job articulating that this slow risk, as Nick would call it in this article, is in in a lot of cases, it's more risky to hold cash or even bonds than it is to hold stocks depending on your time horizon. So he'll do simple things in that book, like talk about, Hey, this is the cost of a stamp in 1972. And this is the cost of a stamp in 2003. And it really helps hammer home. Like, Oh, this is what happened to my purchasing power. And it seems safe because the equities market seems scary during that run to put money in there but if you know that everything you own that same price purchasing power that's happening with the stamp is happening to all those other things you can quickly get to the point of being like oh gosh i need equity exposure for the long term or i'm gonna be
1: in big trouble great concepts i'm so happy you brought this up this next next couple points uh, is where the the brain starts to go is he has a line in there where he says with slow risk, there's no single event that you can point to and say, "Here's where I went wrong." I agree with the premise of that and where he's coming from, how most of us think, like he's right, that there isn't a thing where you can say it was. If I was smoking for thirty years, it was that cigarette, right? Like it's you, you yeah. can't quite say that, right? I can see where that brain would go there. However, the way my brain works is I challenge it to say that there are single events that people can point to even if they don't realize that those were the events. It's about, to me, the creation of precedent and establishing a decision-making framework that you can point to as one event, right? It might be the cigarette event might be, um, I was out on the playground in 10th grade and Janie pulled out a cigarette. And so then it was like the, the influence. Yeah. Now you're saying I'm setting a precedent of peer pressure or you know whatever the case might be. It could be in talking about I have, I have full faith, knowing my own psychology here, that this won't be the case. But last week, we were talking about the minuscule option bets right? that I made yep. so I could understand the mechanics of options. Someone in that case, I'm, I'm going to separate this from Dougal's, but someone there could go, okay, so I'm just going to, let's say once a quarter, because it scratches an itch, I'm going to have tiny, tiny bets in my portfolio that I bet around on options around earnings. And like that won't do anything, right? It's a small part of my portfolio. And then in five years, I'm like, but this looks like a real bet right and so it's it's more there's like a decision making framework that was created and a precedent that was created that that turns into a gateway i think is is the thing that's kind of missing and so i i believe that it's important that you recognize the single events even if they are meaningless seemingly meaningless on their own as a precedent that you're setting for yourself or for others in some cases i agree i think i agree like basically 100 percent. but
0: i'm gonna try and Uh, say it in a slightly different way if 20 years from now i'm in really bad health because poor diet and not enough sleep in my case that will probably be because i made i made adjustments to deal with stress of like the pandemic stuff that i let run too long and become habits rather than being like oh this is a crazy time i'm gonna relax on xyz but I know, and I'm, I'm already in the process of trying to adjust back to a more normal diet and everything else, right? And, and so I think I could tie that slow risk, as Nick would call it, back to an event and a, a fact that I didn't recognize that that event was happening and to your point, like turned it into a precedent and totally changed my process in a way that had long-term consequences
1: powerful stuff i think the concepts there
0: are super powerful all right what's what's in your fishbowl i mean should we just briefly talk about meta did you ever watch silicon valley on hbo oh are you kidding me how many times okay right i mean is this not Huli? like this <laughs> this is just hooli. go watch the 30 second clip it is the creepiest thing and it is 100 percent out of that show i could just
1: Picture. What is his name? Gavin something. Yeah, uh, that show is real. Like it's <laughs> yeah. the show is it's non-exaggerated, like real things that occur. I don't know, man. I don't know what to do but laugh about it. um
0: And I think sometimes humor is the right medicine. This is it. Just seems like a massive joke. It, watch that video and watch the little. Of course, the little thing like spins around and turns into like kind of this infinity logo.
1: Uh, it's like it's so bad one what I one thing I've mentioned briefly before is all this stuff it takes me back to like 10, 12 whatever years ago when I was at Second Life right all this stuff is coming back out we have people if you if you have not uh, heard of Second Life makes a lot of sense yeah. one that you haven't but like go look into it and go back if you can find them on the internet and look at articles from like 2006 2007 around Second Life when it was blowing up Um, it is the metaverse like based off of snow crash right back in the 1990s and we had our own economy with linden dollars which you could say is like the cryptocurrency you we had the equivalent of nfts back then you could create things like shirts you had land right which i code in them which tied to owners that they could sell right it it had all that um avatars whatever right was the metaverse and just seeing all this stuff whether this turns into a thing and all the nfts and all the stuff turns into a thing like we'll see but it's creeping out the shell
0: does this make me like a grumpy old man that when i hear zuck's pitch for the metaverse i go like why would i even want to participate like that doesn't seem that it's gonna bring me like happiness and well-being
1: so here was my view back then on it because the same the same kinds of conversations were happening back when I was there too. I would say in the, um, I would refer when I was talking to some friends, sometimes I'd be like, well, in first life you go and they're like, dude, that's just life. Like there's not, there's, it's just called life. But um, it was the same kind of same kind of conversations that were happening back then. And what, where I positioned this in my head was there are, there are a lot of people um, whether it's like a segment of the population or it could be geographic, whatever it might be, that don't have access to other um, to what, like maybe you might have access to day to day, so examples that I like leaned into pretty hard um, back then was uh, was like teenagers. Teenagers were a tiny part of the Second Life population. I ended up leading the strategic initiative, and they became like twenty percent because I said like this is a group where expression is big. Being able to like start your own business is like a thing that you can't. You can only like really kind of dream of, you don't have mm-hmm. the kind of resources, right? The, the creativity, all that. I think there are populations, right? Or you could look um, in some international populations, you could see where where this type of connection to the rest of the world uh, might not feel as real, right? That you can get another avenue. So I see I see things like that. I think that there could also be implications for the enterprise, for work. Now, Skippy, going into the metaverse, I mean, you're buying your long underwear off eBay. Yeah, it's such a good point,
0: you know, no. So that I love that perspective. That's a really good point. And I don't mean to throw shade at the people that it might work for. And at some point, I think it would work for me and be intriguing. Um, you know, there's a professor from the University of Chicago and I, I can't pronounce his name, but talks about studying flow. And one of the things flow is like this natural state where the, the brain excels and
1: the, people the are engaged and happy, uh, progressive advertising woman is that you're talking about
0: (laughs) unbelievable (laughs) ruined (laughs) my whole story anyway uh there's things about video games the metaverse whatever that can be really beneficial to the way the human brain processes information in terms of having like clear rules and boundaries and i can see it really working for some folks i don't know maybe i need a more open mind about it maybe i should give it a shot it's a big bet it's a big bet Can I do my mini rant on, I mean, Facebook is a classic growth company. I remember when IPO'd, I know friends that bought the IPO. This is what drives me crazy about growth investing. So Dougals, any guesses on your return? If you would have bought at IPO, which is roughly 10 years ago, I'd say 20 X. About 10 X is up about a thousand percent, right? Okay. Nice turn. No, one's going to complain about that. No one that bought the IPO and held it, I imagine, is upset. Here's what they have done, though. And here's what a lot of growth companies seem to do that just drives me crazy as a value investor. Um, This is a me issue, not necessarily a Facebook issue. So they're at the point where they're generating $32 billion a year in free cash flow. And the way things are going, it looks like they could turn the switch and even uh, grow that. And instead of saying, Oh, we got to reward our investors it, it wouldn't even have to be a, with a dividend it could be with a buyback or a thousand other things or it could just be sp- spending some of that money to like fully lock down your core businesses that are the ones that are generating um that cash yeah. flow yeah. zuck's like ah oh, what's a what's a good size check oh 10 billion dollars i'm going to spend 10 billion dollars on this passion project of mine that's completely unproven and people have done in the past to your second life experiment and no one knows if it's gonna take off or not. And to be honest, one other thing about the metaverse, if the metaverse takes off, I think I'm gonna be uh, liable to get on board with whatever metaverse company is not Facebook <laughs> too. <laughs> like Anyone else it uh, has a metaverse, I'm in that side of the equation. So point being, or my frustration is just like, you're at the point where you are a mature, sophisticated, potentially great company with great network effects and you see that cash flow coming in the door and now you're like oh how can we burn this where's a fireplace to throw this Uh, it just drives me crazy because i think they should be transitioning kind of like a google or an apple has done i mean apple had trials and tribulations where their mindset about free cash flow is just going to be different than facebook's because they had tough times facebook's never really had tough times and that's why i think uh Zuckerberg doesn't fully understand the gravity of like, "Oh, I'm just going to spend ten billion dollars on something I'm into. Do his shareholders support this?
1: He is the shareholders, so I don't think it matters i mean he I, Zuck, I'm pretty sure still holds control um over yeah. that organization well i i don't i don't go. know I don't know Zuck by any means um he doesn't seem that flippant though I would say, and so oh he's the, very calculated, he, but that doesn't mean he's doesn't, doesn't mean he's right. Mistakes. Yeah, it doesn't mean he's right. But I, I'm curious. I say that because I'm curious as to with a name change like this, like this is this is a really big deal. I wonder what's sitting behind it beyond just his passion project, like whether or not it turns out to be right. I'm curious as to all the supporting points um, that go into it. We'll see. I'd like your uh, I'd see you like putting out a bid for I will invest in any organization that is not previously named Facebook. <laughs> that is willing to provide access I will, to the metaverse. I will
0: give me give me a metaverse that's like twenty percent as good. If you're not
1: Facebook, I will consider it. I love it. Oh, I love it. Uh, can I dip in for? Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna take a transition of groups of people that maybe didn't have access. Um, to use use that kind of transition to dive into the fishbowl for for something. Yeah, that please. is. Black Bitcoin, I was not familiar with all of the, I'll say, organizations um, and conferences and clubhouse groups, like all of this that were around uh, Black people and cryptocurrencies. Fascinating to me. I read this article last week called Inside the World of Black Bitcoin, where crypto is about making more than just money, is in time which I also didn't realize that was still around. So this was like just a whole like, revelation for me. And so, I already
0: put this out on the Twitter at Skippy Doogles because uh, when, when you passed it my way, I knew there was really something quality here. I knew we'd talk about it on the show, so it's already out there. It's good stuff.
1: The, the top line premise of this piece, it's a, it's a long one and well worth the read. Please go and read it. Yep. Is that crypto is about liberation. And that, that's the discussion that's being had here. So, a few of the things that caught me by surprise in here, in addition to all the groups, organizations, et cetera, that are um, about this, is that unlike the lower participation that we've discussed on here in other investments, surveys show that people of color outpace other groups when it comes to investing in crypto. So, a couple stats that were thrown out about 44% of people who own crypto are people of color, according to a June survey by the University University of Chicago's uh, National Opinion Research Center. And the Harris poll showed that 16% of US adults own crypto, but that's 18% for blacks and 20% for Latinx. Yep. I never would have guessed, never would have guessed that. So the thing I loved, I'm going to
0: try and take a victory lap here and you're going to put me in my place, is... I feel like for the last six months, I've been telling you about the thing that intrigues me about crypto. One is the technology side and um, the innovation happening there. I think it's the most interesting place in finance right now, not necessarily the best investment. And then two is that I felt like there was an ability to help people whose um, financial systems are failing them. And I naturally go to places in Africa or Venezuela, or, you know, like places that you think of as more oppressed. But the, the tilt on this article was about a lot of these individuals, a lot of these black Bitcoin owners feel like the US financial system is holding them back. And this is a way to get a system that doesn't have any of those preconceptions or discriminations
1: Built in, and that is really, really cool to me. It's really powerful. I'll, I'll I'll give you that victory lap. Yes. Also, for me, like I, I'm so mixed on it, right? So mixed. the The issue of like liberation in here is around inequality, as we've talked about. And there's, there's one point that was made in here that if uh, there was some estimate, I don't know where it comes from, that if current trends continue, the median black household in the U.S. will have zero wealth by 2053. Like need to combat that where I get mixed with this is everything you said all about it. Love it. It make it, like, it makes sense that like this system was as was stated in the articles, like built off of our backs. Like we can't, can't trust it. Yeah, Right. Yeah. Get that. So let's have a system. I'll call it of our own, whether or not it was created by right. But like system that we feel flexibility and power in, I, I get that point. There's no, there's no reward without risk. But the risk that I'm most fearful of is that that bet is being made on the nascent, unsupported, unregulated, like, like all of that is where the, the bet's being made and it could really burn like that, that that's the, that's where the, you know, my, my trepidation around it kind of comes from. So the,
0: the thing I loved about this article on With that particular point, though, is at the end, I think they do a really good job tying together how risky this can be. And they interview a bunch of people that say, yes, there's some promise of, you know, there's no heavy hand because it is decentralized. But that doesn't mean it's risk-free. That doesn't mean it's a no-brainer. Like, none of those things are true. And I, like you, hate to see people put their life savings in something they don't understand. And you can't claim the majority of Americans or the majority of black Americans understand cryptocurrencies. that's just not the case right now. And so I, yeah, 100% agree with everything you said. I think that's a huge risk and I almost lose sleep about it, but it's nice to see some of the positives,
1: uh, there because it's a balancing act. There's definitely pros and cons. Agreed. I, I love the power. In it. Like that, like reading this article, I felt the power from individuals in the article of where they had, like, don't feel that financial power elsewhere. I love it. Yeah. Like, it it was, it was amazing. One of the uh, little anecdotes that I really enjoyed in this was there was a, a man that would go and buy his $2 lotto tickets at the corner store and goes in, and the lotto machine wasn't there. It's like, where do I get my scratchums? Right. Yeah. And they said, uh, said, well, your machine is right there. And it was a Bitcoin machine. Not not the lotto machine. So I was like, same, you put your $2 in, you'll get, you'll get yourself an investment. And it was something like, I can't remember the percent that they had in there. But his $2 got, you know, some fraction of a fraction of like a Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. It was fa- that I was like, Oh, wow, like that is, a, you change it, you basically say, it's a gamble, just like your lotto tickets a gamble, <laughs> except it's a gamble where you hold an asset. Like, yeah, it, it was I love that little anecdote. I loved it too. That was I had these
0: conflicting emotions because the way it read, it was kind of like the dude was coming in to scratch an itch, and there was a there was a machine there, and he, uh, so he was gonna put two dollars in something, and I felt like initially they (laughs) like put a i don't know like i could have been there with a sign that said i'll, I'll shake your hand for two dollars and he would hand it over <laughs> well now in retrospect because bitcoin has as increased. i think what was that like yeah. that was more than five years ago so i think yeah. if he still owns that bitcoin he
1: did very well yeah but, Bitcoin's uh, like up 60x since then <laughs> i had
0: a hard time uh understanding because they talked about The one guy pulled him aside and kind of explained how it worked and explained that it was an asset and everything else. But I couldn't decipher, like, if he was just, he had to get rid of that $2 or if he actually went, oh, this is the future, I love this, I'm making an investment now. Um,
1: Good story regardless. It's somewhere in between. I don't think, they they didn't sat down and, like, read Satoshi's paper and go through the promise of blockchain. (laughs) Here's the white
0: paper and... Oh man. Do a discounted cash flow on the gold market? And, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> all, right. all
1: right. What's what's next in your fishbowl?
0: Can can we both allow ourselves a little rant on how idiotic it would have been to do the unrealized capital gains tax on billionaires that was being discussed earlier this week? I can bring a different point of view. Okay, let's do it. Let's hear your different point of view because I was texting you all week and you
1: were withholding information i was i said we got to save this conversation for the pod so if anyone's unfamiliar the
0: democratic the democrats what are we calling this build back better bill yeah has been reduced from three and a half trillion in an initial conversations down to see their 1.75 or 1.85 that It seems like the progressive Democrats are holding up the, another bill, the infrastructure bill, which actually has a little bipartisan support until this bill gets passed. And so this week, as some of the senators in Arizona and West Virginia ask for some of the more progressive measures to be removed, the Democrats scrambled to try and create tax revenue for this one of the things that was discussed but ultimately did not make the bill because it was roundly criticized uh was a tax on billionaires the tax would have affected about 700 people in the united states and it would have taxed unrealized capital gains which means the value of equities they hold before they make a sell
1: decision okay so i want to hear your counterpoint so my my counterpoint is largely it's actually more of a question. If you look at whether this is good or bad, um, the question is what's your goal? Because okay. the I all the points that you raised in your in your text, which I thoroughly enjoyed, you were saying things about how this could force like how are you gonna pay a tax on something you haven't sold if you don't have the cash? If they then get the cash, then so you're de- like it's a it's like this weird cycle you end up creating. And I think you could there are like multiple goals. Like I'll name like a few potential ones, but like multiple goals that you could have in doing this. You could say there was actually, I read um, uh, Howard Marks was making a statement around it and saying how it like will probably end up decreasing investor sentiment if you start introducing things like this and we have to save the economy. So if you have a goal of like support, save support or save the economy, it's like that's the goal, right? And that like we're just we're looking at that. You could have a goal of decreasing inequality. You could have a goal of increasing investor sentiment, which this would not do. You could have a goal of protecting the wealthy and their taxes, which this would not do. You could have a goal of protecting entrepreneurship, right? In the US and all that. There's like there's a lot of different goals you could have. But if some goals, like if you if you go back to a pure premise of saying that there are people that have a, a control over wealth in the country that is accelerating at a rate, mm-hmm. you could say, actually, we want to decrease inequality and do we want to force sales like once you get over a certain point you wouldn't have to you wouldn't even have to uh, to say unrealized capital gains is what we're taxing you could just say if you have assets over this you must sell them kind of like we do with uh, with IRAs right once you're at a certain point there's like a minimum distribution you could do that and just tax capital gains like i i just think it depends on on the goal but if you do something like this it's making a statement on like what the us quote unquote stands for right now which i don't think we're ready for i'll tell you that much but that, so that was where my my head was going okay
0: so do we agree that okay let's just do a simple example and just tell me where i go wrong because i'm not necessarily saying uh some like elon musk who might be worth going on 300 billion dollars should not have to pay taxes and i'm not saying that some of the taxes from his camp shouldn't be used for infrastructure programs that allow disadvantaged kids to go to preschool like I don't really think anyone holds that belief. So as I see, when you talk about what you're trying to accomplish here, what I think they were trying to accomplish is generated more
1: tax revenue to pay for a $2 trillion spending. So so it's the, it's the economy. Basically. It's like a, yeah. Rather myopic focus on supporting the future economy.
0: And so Elon Musk owns, I believe it's 20, about 21% of Tesla. Right. And Tesla is now a trillion dollar company. If you have a tax like this and you say it's a billionaire's tax and what, what tax rate do you want to use for conversations? Like
1: do you want to say 10%? Oh, sure. I mean, I think when, uh, when Sanders and Warren came out, which is unconnected to this earlier this year, it was like 3%. Like it was, it's a low single digit, but we can say 10% for math simplicity.
0: Yeah. Let's just say 10%. So Let's say Musk has, and we'll round all the numbers. Let's say he has roughly two hundred billion in Tesla stock that he hasn't been selling. He hasn't. I don't think he sold a share. I can. I can double check that. But he hasn't been selling. If you have a forced tax event that says, "Hey, we're gonna charge him twenty billion dollars next year." Where does he get the $20 million from the only place where someone could get $20 billion and there's only like five people on the planet that could actually get $20 billion is to sell the equities, right? So that is actually fundamentally changing the value of his company because you're c- causing a forced sale. That's the part that really yeah, you know, fires me up. Like, and then let's talk about this because I think people lose track of this. One of the reasons Tesla's uh, stock price continues to go up and up and up is because there's strong demand and there's pretty much no one selling it. Well, One of the reasons there's pretty much no one selling it is because Musk has a ton of the stock and he's choosing not to sell, which is actually an irrational decision, I would argue. Multiple years ago, when the stock price was at $130 a share, which is like 6x ago or something, (laughs)
1: I don't even know the current
0: (laughs) share price it's a long it's it's a long time ago and he said the stock price is overvalued so most people would go hey the stock price has been overvalued for three years I'm going to be dumping shares he hasn't done that because he doesn't need the money and it's a fun like he likes the company and he just he's just wired differently right I just think this messes with capital markets in a way where they're the the cons
1: outweigh the pros. I, yeah. I just really can't get on board with this. In the math, an example that you just laid out it makes sense, right? It's, but, uh, the, the actual numbers end up mattering a lot. Oh, They matter a lot,
0: but, right. but then the flip and, side doodles is how, do, how do you handle unrealized losses? So in 2022, if the value of Tesla stock drops gets cut in half, which could very easily happen. Does that mean Musk personally has this massive tax credit and he's never gonna pay taxes for the next 40 years based on the tax credit he got from the unrealized losses of this? You can't do one side of the equation without the other, can you?
1: Yeah, I mean but but potentially I mean that could be it. There's probably some carryover, right? Just like you having capital gains. I mean I could see that. I think that the numbers matter a heck of a lot. And the um there is a you know for for folks thinking about this, there is a Tangential precedent for what we something that we do do in this country right now is property tax. If you own a home, that is you're not selling your home and then having to pay on that. There is a small percentage of the value of the home, and that's not the increased value of the home. It's the value of the home that you end up paying, right? And so that is a version of a wealth tax. So it's not a fully unprecedented uh, thing that we have right now. But I I I agree with you. I mean I I'm I agree. I agree with that statement. And I think that the matter, the money, uh, like the actual figures end up mattering a heck of a lot because even in what you were saying, so if trillion dollars, his value is 200 billion and of that 200 billion, it's been 50 billion is like the increase in value. And so then you have to look at like the percentage of that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And does he decide because uh, not to sell, but because the rates are like interest rates are so low right now that actually I'm just going to, I'm going to take out a collateralized loan and end up paying it. I don't know. I mean, it's a, like the numbers are so big that you're right when there's, when there's such high concentration in the stock market and there, and then you have people selling high concentrations of that stock of the highly concentrated stock market, the capital markets go buck wild. Yeah. Um, but I, I, uh, my, my point was not necessarily, I don't know where I stand probably on this. Um, mm-hmm. I think if, if we were to do something like this, it should have pretty tight guardrails of saying like, we're trying to pay to your point we're trying to pay for this infrastructure bill over the next few years. So like, we're just going to do this once. Like there's like a one-time special dividend that the people that have, that have made a lot of money off the pandemic when the U S has not made a lot of money have to pay like, or something. I'm, I'm just, I'm not going to the detail, but yeah, but it seems like we're just trying to support the economy. And so if you name the goal, it's easier to figure out the guardrails.
0: I understand where you're coming from. I don't hate the concept, but I think the actual implementation is just impossible to do in a way that's practical (laughs) so speaking of how much money musk has made this year he's made about 120 billion dollars that's more than warren buffett bill gates have made in their entire lifetimes i i mean that's crazy and that's where proposals like this get floated but that's because he happens to own more than 20% of a trillion dollar company. This has never happened in history to this point. It probably won't happen again. And again, if he was acting rationally, he would be selling uh, some of that. He's not. I think anytime you create a substantial tax that targets 700 people, and these are gonna be the people that are, in some cases, like cult superheroes in terms of business icons, what's to stop musk from moving to mexico over attacks like this and taking his helicopter back and forth over the border to texas or whatever else like i think you also potentially alienate some of your best business talent yeah Templeton. um yeah right he left and and yeah. i think you'd be effectively saying oh these are in by one measure the 700 most successful people in our economy which is the best in the world now let's find a way to get them to leave i don't think that is yep. what we want to do i hear you thanks for listening to my rant on that yeah. i'm
1: done now All right, i have one last thing in my fishbowl that i'm going to dip into speaking of wealth creation there's a, a post that came out a history of wealth creation in the u.s equity markets uh, on alpha architect and this referred back this is like Peer Dougal style type of research. I love this stuff. I was looking at this and I just went, mm, like these people know what they're doing. So this paper that they're they're referring to was one that came out earlier this year called Wealth Creation in the U.S. Public Stock Markets, 1926-2019. So the post that they put out on Alpha Architect is kind of like a summary and some uh, reflection on this paper to give you some of the context on what the paper looked at. It looked at the twenty six thousand one hundred sixty eight companies that were publicly traded in the U.S. Since 1926, looked at their cash distributions, their capital appreciation, and was basically at the high level saying how much wealth has been created in the U.S. stock market during this time period, and then did some cuts. So I'm going to lay out some of these cuts, and I'm going to throw in a little quiz for you because it's just fun. So don't don't if you're trying to cheat, don't do it. I'm gonna throw in a little quiz for you. So uh, some of the facts: the majority of stocks, not surprisingly, reduced wealth creation. Um, during this period. So it was 57.8% that would reduce wealth creation. And aggregate wealth was concentrated in a relatively few number of high performing stocks. And this concentration increased over time. So an example they gave was in the last three years of the study, which I think was 17, 18, 19, 2017, 2018, 2019, 22% of the net wealth that was created came from five companies. And two companies accounted for ten percent. So, just some examples. The longer term examples of that concentration were what really got me going, got my eyes going big and whatnot. Because this this uh, reminded me of I don't remember which episode it was, but one of our earlier episodes we went through the number of companies that have been the best performing company. Like if you look year by year up to that date, yeah. and there are very few, right, that have that have held that that ranks. That gets to the concentration piece. So, of the 86 top-performing stocks over the entire period. So if you look at the 1926-2019, the 86 top-performing stocks, what percentage of the wealth created during that period came from those stocks? And as a reminder, so there were 26, a little over 26,000 total companies looked at. 86 of them created what percent? Of the wealth creation, I'm going to go... 72 percent not quite that high it was half okay if you look at the thousand like the top thousand stocks it was all of it yeah so of the of the twenty-six thousand stocks a thousand of them were all of the wealth creation second second little quiz for you here if you look at wealth creation by industry i don't know if they did sic codes or what they did here their innovation is not one of them fyi for kathy wood if you're looking at this innovation is not one of the industries so <laughs> how's
0: it going kathy but, yeah, Thanks for go. listening.
1: Um, so of the the industries that are listed out, they have 11, one of which is other. But what do you think is the highest industry of wealth creation? Let's go finance. Um, no, that is an industry though. So well, okay. hold on. Um, so technology was number one. with. Uh, oh, 19- Kathy Wood. Yeah, there we go, Kathy. <laughs> sure. Okay, innovation. Uh, so 19% of the wealth creation came from um, from technology. There was this other, this other point um, of like data that they brought up, which I also thought was like an interesting way to look at this, is they looked at the, the ratio of wealth creation to the number of firms that were actually in that industry. And that, that's a different view. And so the highest there was telecom. So telecommunications companies had a 1.77 like, ratio of... So they have, the, they have the, like, a lower relative percentage of the total number of companies, but a higher percentage of, um, of the wealth. And so like pharma fell into that telecom fell into that uh so that means wealth,
0: one. wealth per company
1: yeah, right exactly. i mean yeah i'd argue that
0: like so what you're saying here is lifetime wealth creation in technology just means there were more firms in technology creating wealth i would argue the right metric is that wealth created per firm thing which would put actually telecom on top but yeah. to be fair Finance is up there. Actually, yeah. no. What's interesting, finance is up there on the gross number. It was fifteen point two percent of the wealth creation, but its ratio per firm is really low. I mean, yeah. a
1: part of depending on who you put in there, a part of that could be that uh, financial companies got like obliterated during downturns. It's like the amount of negative wealth that probably that came from those. Like if you if we went back to the nineteen eighties, let's just say like before the savings and loan crashes Ooh, yeah. that happened. You might have had something very different there but then after the 1980s if you're looking at 1992 you're like oh they all got obliterated 2008 finance finance companies got obliterated right like yeah. I, I think that that might be one of the factors going in there so
0: well yeah you have the leverage piece in there and then who knows if this includes like it would i guess uh publicly held community banks anything that's publicly listed um so there could be a yeah. lot of really
1: small financial institutions here so I had fun with the the research and the data. The point of the post that Alpha Architect put out here was: look at these numbers, and then go tell me you're about to go buy individual stocks. I dare you. Like that's ba- that's basically what they were saying, and not 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 those words. They were just saying individual stocks are not for your everyday investor. They are dangerous. This is where index indexing comes for your everyday investor. Um, indexing is yeah. a much better idea because. The returns that end up coming in the long run come from such few firms that you either buy those firms or it's no bueno type situation for you. So buy ETFs. That that was kind of the point. I thought the data was was pretty interesting here and worth a read.
0: Yeah, this is good. Uh, this is Larry Swendro, who's uh, super bright. And um, sorry, Wes and Ryan and team at Alpha Architect. I'm still gonna buy some individual
1: stocks, but oh yeah, I'm all up in the not only not only am I going to buy individual stocks, I'm going to have a concentrated portfolio of individual <laughs> stocks. So like, uh, yeah, not, not for your average investor
0: or your amateur investor for sure. Can we jump to one more thing in my fishbowl? Yeah. So I saw this graphic this week and I know I sent it your way. It's from visual capitalist. Um, I think I came across it on Twitter. It could have been some other social media, right? It's the world's 100 biggest companies. And I don't want to dwell on it, but they break it down by country. And so basically there's like 10 in China, a few odd ones in Saudi Arabia, India, France, Ireland, you name it, you know, Switzerland, whatever, Germany. And then I think the number was 44 in the U S. And so my like first level reaction was Wow, that's crazy. I had no clue there was that much dominance uh, with U.S. companies. I think my second level reaction is actually more interesting, I'd hope. It's, uh, to me, this articulates another point about how the U.S. stock market is overvalued because this is the height of, uh, so the U.S. stock market is something like the third most expensive stock market in the world. Basically, European markets, Asian markets over the last 10 years have had trials and tribulations that the U.S. (laughs) markets haven't had. They're just going up and to the right. And this graphic in a way speaks to that because all these companies here haven't really come back to earth. I think they're on the high side of their fair valuation. Yeah, Yeah, I'm on to something here. Are you on to the
1: fact that the U.S. stock market is overvalued? Yeah, this, this actually, it takes me a little bit back to the conversation we had with Adam Burroughs of Rain Ventures back in June, maybe. Uh, And we were, that was around the, uh, the Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting when Warren, my boy, I just call him Warren um, because you don't like how I say his last name sometimes. But my boy Warren, he, uh, he pulled up from, I think it was either 88 or 89, pulled up like the highest market cap stocks back then. And it was basically Japan like for the most part, I think you pulled up the top 10 or top 20 and it was like just ruled by Japan. And then from this past year, from 2020, it was ruled by the U S right. And one of the things that you brought up then was you said, and if you go forward another 30 years, 20, 30 years, what country is going to be? Yep. Right. Um, and so agreed we're, we're definitely under, uh, overvalued (laughs) and Sorry, the U.S. stock market is not undervalued. I'm saying that. So the U.S. stock market is definitely overvalued. And it is fascinating to see what's going to be. Facebook might be charting its own course as to not be one of those organizations right now, potentially by going meta. And then you've got Microsoft, uh, Alphabet, Apple as like the other the other big ones. Where are they going to be? Microsoft is strong right now. Wow. I mean, it's just that that company is hotness. Right now well i want to i want to tell
0: you that i don't think microsoft's overvalued but i do think then this is going back years when when companies were just crossing the trillion dollar threshold in terms of market capitalization you would look at someone like apple and their revenue streams was was so concentrated with iphones and a few other things and you always looked at microsoft and their revenue came almost um in equal parts across five different business units like It's a really impressive, diverse revenue stream that I don't think any of the other companies that large can claim. So uh, there is something to be said for that. Yeah, we will see. Crescendo
1: or not crescendo?
0: Yeah. That's the question. Fun week regardless. All right, guys. So Dougal's hooked up a new Substack. It's Skippy and Dougal's at Substack.com. Good content on there. Please check it out. We're on Twitter at SkippyDougal's. Ah uh, you can email the show skippy at gmail dot com and uh
1: thanks for listening Am I missing anything else doogles i oh, know but skippy and dot dot com oh thank you do do thank not do much. not email substack with our, <laughs> <laughs> our <Randall. laughs> uh
0: please write in the review the podcast if you get a chance. We appreciate that uh thanks for listening guys peace